the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. And welcome to the Spot Track Podcast. Kevin Sylvester along with Paul Pack and the founder of SpotTrack.com, Mike Gennetti. And we are going to dive in uh, first thing today on NHL salary cap, NHL salaries. They play the same season as the NBA, same number of games, play in the same arenas for uh, the most part. Uh, and that's it. Teams. That's the end of the sames. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the <laughs> end of the sames, right? Yeah, that's a good point, Paul. It is the end of the sames. Uh, you know, Mike, you know, really, when you, you dive into NHL contracts as, com- as a par- uh, compared to NBA contracts, the disparity is incredible. Yeah, we've uh, we've kind of highlighted the NBA contracts in the last couple of weeks, and you know they're only getting bigger as we speak right now. So. The, the disparity is huge. The gap is huge. The differences in, in just the league, you know, between revenue, you know, team performance, you know, salaries, you know, superstar salaries even. I mean, there's everything is different going forward, and there really doesn't seem to be any room for improvement quickly either. And yeah. the main reason for that, Mike, is that the NHL is the one major sport that doesn't get the bulk of its revenues from a television contract. That's right. And and really, the, the split between two countries is a big deal, too, which we can get into a little bit as well. Yeah, the uh, the value of the Canadian dollar is certainly something important. We'll blame it on ESPN, Paul, right? <laughs> well, NHL on ESPN. You're right. Honestly, you can, Kevin. I think <laughs> to some degree, the NHL has always struggled to find a national TV outlet because, let's be honest, and... Uh, 60% of the country doesn't care, you know, right? I, I might be even a little low on I think that you're number. Low on that number. You know, yeah. so so how does a network justify spending a lot of money on an NHL TV contract when they know that the bulk of the people of however many people are watching their channel are never going to watch that particular product? Yeah, the markets that watch the product when their team is not playing, it's a parochial sport. Yes. Um, when the are you know, the Northeast markets, smaller markets, the Canadian markets. That's why Canadian television actually kicks a lot of money into this deal. These numbers would be so much lower if uh, the Canadian television deal did not get renewed a few years ago at a billion dollars. Um, you know, and that was large at the time. And that was before the Canadian dollar sank. But before we get even to that, let's talk about the the highest contracts in the National Hockey because the highest contracts in the NBA were you know upper twenties. It's going to be probably forty million next year right. uh, around there, maybe even more. Highest contract in the NHL, it's it's in five digits, but yeah, there's only three players right now with an average salary of ten million or more. So and, and next year that jumps to six, so it's doubling. But six is still not a number you want you want to see with these superstar players out there. So. How do these guys survive? I, yeah, right. I only I mean, only ten million, right? But it's really. But here's the interesting thing: it's not really ten million. That's right. Is it? No. I mean, you're taking taxes out. You're taking, you know, this league revenue escrow out. You know, there's a, there's a buyback system in terms of how the league structures these salaries every year. There's a there's a lot of underlying issues with these salaries, not to mention the fact that they're literally a quarter of what the highest NBA salary is. Right. All right, I, I want to talk about the escrow mm-hmm. thing because that to me is it's fascinating. It's uh, it's the product of two lockouts um, for the National Hockey League. Uh, I used to work in the National Hockey League, uh, so I know a lot about this. Uh, actually, and coming out of lockout, the owners wanted a way to for, for they call it a partnership with the players. Of course, they do. Well, but they do have some marketing. The players do have some marketing rights with that, so they 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 gain more power in the use of their image and some of the other ancillary things, you know, outside of hockey. But there are some things that are just a tough deal for the players. Let me, you know, relatively speaking to other sports. 
One of them is hockey-related revenues because there's there is um, it's not fifty shades of gray, but there are several shades of gray uh, when it comes to hockey-related revenue. That's what goes into the salary cap pot for teams. So you know, for example, if a team owns the arena and uses the same advertising for a concert that they use for hockey, that gets split up. So a naming rights deal for an arena, if the team controls the arena, it's not all of it goes into hockey-related revenue because they hold concerts. Those dates get subtracted out. They may have an NBA team playing. Those dates get uh, subtracted out. Only the dates of use. So So not only is it beneficial to that team to have more concerts and other events to generate revenues that come with those, but it lessens the amount of money that has to go towards the NHL part of it. The it's like if you see the if you've seen the movie The Founder, right? I mm-hmm. just I just watched it recently. Yep, great movie by the way. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. You know, Ray Kroc uh, through a chance meeting, this guy helps him figure out the, the values in the property, right? Owning the property and the lease, owning the land that the McDonald's are on, not owning the McDonald's themselves. To me, that's the value of being an NHL team, uh, owning owning the building because you have so many other ways to make money uh, when it comes to that. But the escrow part of it, Mike, just explain what that is, and you know we could talk about how interesting it, it is for the players and what kind of a bad deal it is for them. Yeah. So essentially, you know, each player, you know, whether they make a million or ten million, there, there's a portion of that that's essentially held. It's like it's like having a, a home mortgage, right? So you know, there's always going to be money in the bank in terms of escrow that sort of rolls over if it needs to, and it's it's really a way for the league to say, you know. We can't pay you everything up front, so, so we're going to hold a little bit back just in case because we're not positive that going forward we're in good standing right now. So, you know, at the end of the year, generally there's a, there's a payback option, um, but there's been times when play, players haven't been paid their full salary within a calendar year, and there's had to be a rollover situation where, you know, players have portions of payments in, in years, in future years. So it's a really finicky situation. It's a really unique situation, and it's it, it, it's evidence that the league really doesn't have a, a good, strong hold on their short-term future with their financial situation. And, and this is through two lockouts. They're still in the situation. I remember after the first lockout, um, in the first year, players got all their money back. Right. So the the money was is withheld. Fifteen percent of the salary goes into the community pot, if you will, to help pay players' salaries, which I always thought was bizarre. And then you have the star player. You have Connor McDavid. All right. Now I know he's paying fifteen percent in there into the pot that goes to help pay his salary but the minimum guy is making half a million bucks which is great but he's paying half a million bucks he's he's paying 15 percent to help pay the guy who's making 12 and a half yeah it's just an it's a, just a weird dynamic it, it, going in it, there. let me ask both of you guys this question and kevin you might you're around hockey players a lot more than either of us is it just the general nature and mindset of hockey players that have allowed this to happen you know i mean hockey players generally are good old country boys from the plains of Saskatchewan and they just want to play and they leave home at 14 years old to go play and all they want to do is get in the NHL. I mean, it, it, have they allowed this just because of there's a love of the game part of it and, and it's never been as much of a business maybe it is for other professional athletes? Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're spot on there. I think, you know, it, it's uh, the upbringing you know, going away at 14 uh, for most players. Now you see more players go to college, but there is, and this doesn't, this is not it because one of the smartest hockey players I ever met was Rob Ray, but not formally educated. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, the players that were the junior, they didn't go to college, they didn't go to business school. Um, so there are certain things perhaps they don't know. 
um, business-wise. Doesn't mean they're not smart. I want to make that clear because um, you know, Rob has a great business acumen and, again, one of the smarter players uh, I'd ever met. But they did – one of the issues was and why they needed to come to the, the disparity prior to having a salary cap – you had guys making uh, – the New York Rangers spent a ton of money the one year. I think Yager was getting $40 million. Bobby Holik made an incredible amount of money. They didn't have a cap, so there were the haves and have-nots. So they leveled the playing field with a salary cap, so every team had to spend a certain amount. So players were going to make more – or there would be more uh, sharing of the wealth, if you will – the minimum salary went up instead of being a hundred grand. It's up to you know half a million, but they all pay into this pot. And initially, they all got the money back. And it was like, okay, it's great that's escrow thing. But as salaries escalated, and it really happened in 2007 when uh, there's an arbitration case uh, won by Danny Briere when he was with the Buffalo Sabers, and then the following year, free agency, they got eight million dollars. Uh, both he and Chris Drew, the, the co-cap, they really set the market. And all of a sudden, players did not get all of their 15% back. And tax issue later on and just all these things. They were counting on that money. It didn't happen. And that kind of that kind of changed the formula, Mike. So, so I, think, I think the issue of the hard cap is a big one because obviously that was put in place to standardize the league in terms of the financial situation. But really what they were trying to do as well is, you know, you've got this escrow pool so that, you know, Peter pays Paul again, that, that sort of situation. But really what they were looking for, I think, was parity, right? They, they, needed, they needed nationwide, you know, between Canada and U.S., they needed everybody to be productive for, you know, 70 games a year so that, you know, viewership stayed up, ratings stayed up, that kind of thing. Because the league was really, you know, you know and it's not that it's much better, but it was, it was unpopular for a while here. Um, and, and I think they swung and miss on this. I, I really do. I, because I, I think parity's my- too hard. It's, you're never going to have parity because there's going to be good teams, bad teams, good owners, good managers, good coaches. You, you, you can't, you can't legislate equality into performance. But, but, but what you, what you're also doing is you're reducing your superstars. You're reducing their ability to be brands, to be, you know, faces, to be nationwide, you know, names in terms of people who know these players. And, and you already had that a struggle on the ice with that, right? Your Sidney Crosby's, they're great players, but it's such a team sport. You were never going to go to a game and see Sidney Crosby do, you know, 17 great things like you do with LeBron James every night. You know what I mean? So so you've already had that difference in terms of the on-ice on production. And, and really, this, this hard cap, which is not growing, you know, as it should be in terms of how the other sports are growing their, their revenues, um, it's really holding back these abilities for superstars to be paid well and be prominent figures. Well, and, and the other issue that the National Hockey League has is, and they, they've grown, their revenues have grown, but it depends on which teams make the postseason because the majority of the revenue comes from local hockey-related revenue, league-wide as a sport, because they don't have the great television contracts the NFL and the NBA have uh, and Major League Baseball, and even Major League Baseball has local market contracts that are great. NHL, there are some markets that have great local contracts. There are other markets that don't have great local contracts where they're fighting to be on in media. And ticket revenue, local sponsor revenue, suite revenue, those things are huge in the National Hockey League. So, for example, when uh, New York, Chicago, Boston make the playoffs, along with Toronto, Montreal, those are high hockey-related revenue markets. Conversely, if Carolina makes it, Nashville, Nashville, right? Um, you know, Florida. Those aren't high hockey-related revenue markets. Their ticket prices aren't the same as they are in Chicago. So, 
players, if you if if your team's not very good, you want Chicago in, you want New York in, you want Vancouver in, even with the Canadian dollar down. You want Toronto, Montreal, you want those teams in because you're going to get some of your money back if those teams make it. Yeah. And something else interesting, Mike, you touched on this that people have to understand when it relates to the NHL. It's the only sport that's dealing with two countries. And and I'll give you two examples of how the dual country thing comes into play unlike any other sport. Clearly the Canadian dollar, as you guys have both referenced, but the television ratings. Um, th- there's an outcry in the NHL that uh, a game featuring Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby, the two most notable superstars in the NHL, when they played early in the season, the game was not on in the United States. And people would go, what is go? Why? Well, guess what? NBC Sports Network gets no ratings benefit from putting an Edmonton game on. You, they don't measure ratings. Canadian viewers don't measure to their ratings. So it made no sense for them to put that game on nationally. But from an NHL perspective, that's a building the game moment that's one of those moments where someone who doesn't watch a lot of hockey might watch that game and get hooked so there's always that battle that's going on as it relates to Canada versus the United States that's a perfect perfect example of the NHL just you know refining their superstars to you know normal players on the ice that's a situation where that needs to be a TV show Right, that's got to be a situation. Every other where, sport has turned that uh, into a TV that's show, right? And uh, on Wednesdays, you know, let alone right. the weekend, right? right? I mean, I mean, the Wednesday NBA, LeBron, you know, last night, LeBron James in, in Madison Square Garden, that that was an event, you know, that was something people are going to remember going to. You know, I don't know that you've got that experience in the NHL, whether you're at the game, whether you're watching on TV, or whether you're analyzing the numbers like we're doing today. It's just it's a it's a flatlined league right now in yep. terms of the production. And the reason why and this is a pet peeve of mine, and I don't want to spit waste too much time on it. They're the only professional sports league that has realized has not realized that offense sells. Yeah. Uh, the NHL is still a traditional based, more than happy to have a bunch of two one games because that's <laughs> good old team effort. Um, have never loosened up the rules to start having five five four games that might actually attract more attention. Well, they did that out of the – I'm trying to think how many lock. – there's been three lockouts. In the second lockout, they did that, and it opened the game up, but it opened the game up because of penalties. Games are taking long. Television did not like that because you have a time window. Time is money. Neither do the traditionalists, not, you're, particularly you're the Canadian ones that really run the league. That is also correct. Interesting thing, back on the money, Canadian teams pay all players in U.S. dollars. So that's a factor. So when the the – League-wide revenue, when the Canadian dollar was strong, right? Uh, that's why the team went to Winnipeg from Atlanta because they, you know, Canadian dollar was strong. They uh, the revenues were higher when the the dollar went dipped down again. I mean, that affects league-wide revenues and it affects the owners of Canada. It used to be, I don't know if you guys remember this, there was the Canadian Assistance Program, the CAP. Every U.S. team. This is when the Canadian dollar was fifty percent of the. the it's in the nineties. Uh, every U.S. team paid into a fund to help the Canadian team survive because they, you know, found the sport. I mean, without Canada, they really, you know, I don't think the league would survive, frankly, um, even with the, the value of the dollar lower. Now, you know, the biggest ones who pay in, Toronto, Vancouver, you know, they pay a lot into revenue uh, revenue sharing uh, to the league because they make so much money. They don't get revenue sharing. There's a there's a line of demarcation, and there are teams that just make sure they stay below the line, so they get some money from Toronto and yeah. Montreal. And what other? And they have a, there's a formula. Believe me, they they do have uh, mathematicians and accounts that figure out okay where do we need to be uh, so we're not paying in and not getting anything back. 
uh, from the other teams. So and one other point works. for you, Mike, and you brought it, you, you, you did some in- interesting research. When you looked at the average salaries paid per position in the NHL, to my point, goalies are the highest paid, offensive players are not the highest paid. Th- that tells you part of the problem here. Yeah. It's, and, and really, all positions are almost paid exactly equal. Which, which means wrong. Know, there's wrong. no there's no there's no superstar driving any number anywhere. And, and the and, guys that generate the excitement and the interest and score the goals are not the highest paid player, and that is fundamentally wrong, yeah, in my right. opinion. That's right. Well, we do it, but Connor McDavid is going to be the highest paid player, and but that is going to throw off the cap, right? I mean, it's going to be hard to fill in players around him, isn't it? It's going to be. Yeah, we're, you know, we're reading some pieces out of Edmonton that, you know, his 12 and a half million average salary next year going forward, you know, if unless there's a significant increase in the league cap, which, you know, no reports say that, that that that's going to be, you know, binding for that team for the next few years in the short term in in terms of being able to build around it and acquire players to keep that system in place and make them a winning team for the next 3-4 years. So, you know, even guys who are getting paid, it's maybe more of a negative than a positive at this point. The fascinating thing to me about the business of the NHL, and, and just the other day, Gary Bettman at the you know Hockey Hall of Fame, their Hall of Fame induction, which it's interesting, the only sport that plays regular season games yeah. on the night they induct their great players, um, that puzzles me. But anyhow, um, I don't you know. You do it when no one else plays, so every team. That's how everybody else it, does right? it, right? I mean, so they do things differently in the National Hockey League, um, and it's a great sport. But he was asked about the Olympics, and because they're not competing in 2018, uh, they're not going to allow their players to go. Players can decide to go, but they forfeit salary, et cetera, et cetera. Which I understand. Only sport that had to pause their season in the prime of the season, right? I mean, and take the chance that one of their best players gets hurt. Injured, right? Well, but you take a three-week break. I mean, that's three weeks of making prime revenue. So I understand why the NHL does not want to send their best players over to play and disrupt their sport. Um, but he's asked about the Olympics. He said, well, it'll be interesting to see which side reopens the CBA. It's supposed to expire in 2021. They can open it up sooner. And says which side will do it. So that was not good news yeah. for fans. Might be good news for the players. I mean, if the players realize you know, we don't have a, a great deal here, um, but they'll have to dig their heels in because the league has won every lockout. Yeah, I don't know if he's still involved, but I thought it was interesting. A couple of years ago, the players bought Donald Fear in, the, the noted famous baseball player negotiator who really had a, a lot of credit for changing the money dynamics in the sport of baseball. And Kevin, correct me on this if I'm wrong, he, he never really was able to do what I think he thought he was going to be able to do, or at least what he did in baseball. Uh, he got them a better deal than they were going to get, but no, it did not. I mean, look at the money in baseball and, and the freedom they have in baseball where there are still – players are still locked in. I mean, your first five years of career, you you have really have no option to go anywhere uh, in NHL. So, listen, they have it better than they've had it, but it could be better. But it's the, the economics, you have franchises that just aren't making money – and, you know, Vegas just came in, which, yeah, final, Vegas came as an expansion, and many wonder, why would you expand when you have a couple of teams that are just losing money year in and year out, Carolina, Florida, they're not making money. You moved Atlanta to Winnipeg because, you know, you needed to financially, and you went to Las Vegas as an expansion team instead of moving a franchise that needed the help. Right, and uh, re- the real answer to that is more players, 
means the escrow money gets spread out more, mean, means their uh, their salaries each year are more stabilized and more, you know, you know, there's less in terms of the moving moving around in, in the pool. So the more players, the better for the players, even though more players generally means less money for the players. So it's they'll make more stable salaries and the league will be more stable in terms of their flexibility to do things like that. But it's certainly not going to mean much higher salaries annually going forward in terms of how this league is is spreading out. And really with the CBA, last point, um, you know, this could be a situation that we haven't seen yet. You know, I mean, if if the NHLPA, if the Players Association and these players really come together, sort of like the NBA has done in the last couple of CBA situations with their league, you know, the NBA is essentially run by these superstars. I mean, the, the, the player representatives for each team, they, they're active, they're vocal, they use social media to get their points out there. There, there, is a, there are major, major ways for them to kind of restructure their league, and they've done so. And if the NHL is willing to do this, you know, if, if they're willing to, to take this league and sort of start over from scratch in terms of how this financial structure is run, we could see a long lockout, a, a, an arduous lockout, and really... You know, I, I, I've heard it internally, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a push for it for the luxury tax system that the NBA is running, that baseball has run, where it allows teams who have the money to spend it. They, they're just going to get, you know, ding for it and fine for it and have to pay luxury taxes. But, but are, we might be in a situation where that's the best approach for the NHL going forward. You know, these major cities that they want to see in the playoffs and, and they're relying on to, to kind of run the league anyway – let them go and spend as much money as they can. And if that's going to trickle down and make the, whole, the league as a whole better, even if it means five teams go, to, you know, are the best five teams every year, I don't think the NBA is showing us that's a very bad thing. Today's cap fact. Okay, let's get right into it. And this is interesting, Mike, um, because we're not talking necessarily about salaries, but we're talking about the amount of money that has been collected via NFL fines and suspensions. And why do I want to feel like about 70% of this money came out of Vontez Burfecht's paycheck for the Bengals? But these are interesting numbers that over the years, exactly how much has been collected via fines for uniform violations, hits, you name it, anything. Yeah, so we started tracking this about 2010. just on an internal level. And we realized this was starting to become big news about 2012, you know, when the player safety situation really started to ramp up. So we've been tracking this in terms of, you know, dollars, find the type of fines and obviously the position and the player and the team. So we've got, we've got a pretty neat little tool that, that, that you can browse and filter and kind of see how this, this rolls out. But, you know, really without thinking about it, you can probably guess, you know, sort of where the, the majority of these fines are lying. Right. So, any hit to a helmet, any hit to the head is essentially an automatic fine these days. And that's just been the case. It's, it's a good rule and, and that will increase. And, and really, and it's been for six years I've been, that we've been tracking this now, roughing the passer is the most fined, t- fine type uh, violation across the league. Every single year, put it in stone. So <laughs> that uh, protecting the quarterback is, is the most expensive way to lose money. So uh, you know, we've got numbers in terms of the last three years. It's obviously growing. You know, it started off a little bit under $3 million in 2015 in total fines. Last year, there was a big boom up to $3.6 million in fines, um, the majority of which were head hits. And, and this year, we're, we're, we're on pace for about $3.7 million. Um, but really kind of seeing the last couple of weeks, week eight and week nine of the NFL season, if you take a look at our tool this week, the, the, the NFL really ramped up. And we've seen this. We've, we've seen hills and valleys. Um, week one is almost always a lot of fines. 
they come out swinging. They want to make a stance. They want to, they want to set a tone in terms of guys haven't been hitting. That's right. All preseason, no, no practice. Right. So so they, they come out and and they want players to know that's not the way to tackle or you know you can't do that. Then there's always a dump in week two. Almost no fines. Right. <laughs> Either that's players figuring it out or or referees in the league just kind of saying, all right, we're going to let a couple of things go now to kind of get things back on track. But. That we, it's neat to see the week by week, and we do track that as well. So you can kind of see, you know, where there's been a, a majority of fines, where the major fines come in. Obviously, guys like Fonte's perfect, and those. Um, Is he the so, most fine player? Do you have it broken down into, by individual so we, player? I know that's not always easy we, to track. We either. do. I have. I don't have it in front of me, but we do have per player, per team, per position. So he, I believe he's at almost two hundred ninety thousand just in like basic fines since 2013 and then you've got a suspension things like that which yep we also track so he's a you know he's an every what is it bi-weekly probably (laughs) in terms of you know his hits and his situations on and he off just the field. got thrown out of the game yeah. this past Sunday, I, and if you saw the video, it was l- clearly a reputation. The hit wasn't hard. Uh, there was arguable contact with a referee that got him ejected, and and let's be honest, it's a reputation thing. They're looking for it from number fifty-five. Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because you, you sort of start to watch the game that way. You sort of start to see, you know, who's doing what. Are our players tackling differently? Are players approaching the quarterback differently? I've noticed it since I've started tracking these things, and I, and I kind of I'm aware of what would be fined or you know suspendable. So it has improved the game in terms of player safety. There's no question. The more that they find players, the more awareness they're making in terms of this kind of stuff. It's getting out there. Um, but you know we've got the numbers, and it's neat to see. And you know it's definitely a tool that we'll continue to update. You know, in the next couple of weeks, pretty clear that it's the bulk of them are defensive players, obviously, because most of the fines are relating to hitting. Yeah, almost always. I mean, there's some blindside blocks and things like that that, uh, you know, are actually pretty sizable fines in terms of how the league has it structured. Um, you know, they take those crack back blocks and things like that pretty seriously. But generally, it's the defense, you know, you know they're in a tough situation right now with this current with the game. It, it's tough to know how to tackle. It's tough to know where to tackle. It's tough to know who to hit and when you can hit them and things like that. So it's, it's, a, it's a bad time to be a defensive player. Time now for the contract of the week. All right, Mike, our contract of the week is Matthew Stafford of the Detroit Lions, a five-year, $135 million contract extension that came in August and Track analyzes these deals. Take us through the analysis of the Matthew Stafford deal and how you guys do it. Yeah, so I wanted to take a moment this week, just kind of talk about, you know, obviously you can see the numbers on paper, the, the $135 million, but but when we see a deal like this and we actually see the nuts and bolts of the deal, we, we look at it a little bit differently than maybe the average fan would take a look at it. So the first way to look at it is guaranteed money. And, you know, that's a that's a big number. That's a big that's a big word in terms of these contracts with the NFL. But there's a there's a term specifically that we should we look for and we hope that that fans look for when they see these contracts. And it's called guaranteed at signing. What that what that means is it's money that's Matthew Stafford is guaranteed the day he signs the contract. Nothing has to happen. He doesn't have to have to do anything productively. He doesn't have to wait a couple of years to get the money. If he were cut the day the next day after signing the contract, this money would be his. Those are signing bonuses. Those are salaries, base salaries. Those are sometimes roster bonuses um, that are pre-guaranteed, things like that. So in terms of Stafford's $135 million, $60.5 million of it was guaranteed the second he signed the contract, which is a huge number. You know, it's a it's a good number for him. It's a good number for the league going forward, you know, as these players really push for fully guaranteed contracts. So that's really the number you want to look at in terms of when these contracts are signed. So the next one is cash flow, 
right? Not So there's a difference between salary cap and salary cash, right? Cash is obviously the, the money that the player is making annually. Matthew Stafford's three-year cash flow is bigger than any contract that, that was has been signed in the history of the NFL. He got $51 million his first year, this year, 2017, which is signing bonus and, and salary. He'll get $67.5 million through next year, and he'll get he'll get $87 million through the first three years. All of those numbers are the biggest ever, and that's really the, re- the representation of how this contract works. Three years, $87 million. When we take a contract, the first thing we do is we break it down into three years. And, and in terms of Stafford, it's an $87 million deal over those three years. So a, a cash flow across the first three years, really important point in terms of these big contracts. The next one then is... When can the team or the player get out of this contract financially, right? So how is it structured so that dead cap, which is essentially how these bonuses are allocated, or and then the salary cap hit are kind of working with each other. So in terms of Stafford, in terms of how this dead cap and the cap hits are structured, this is a four-year deal worth $108.5 million, which is more than $27 million a year. So Stafford really made out well here. All of these numbers are the biggest ever. You know, that's just how this next man up situation is working with these quarterback contracts. Um, so it's an outstanding deal. The Lions can cut bait with after 2020 for a $10 million dead cap hit. So that's that's they'll save $20 million if they do that. So that's that's essentially the line of demarcation that we've written for this contract to say that's an OK out for the, the Lions at that point. And the final one, and it's really something we do with all contracts across all of the major sports, is we take his average salary and we and we do a percentage of that based on the, the, that sports salary cap. So in terms of Stafford's $27 million average, it's 16% of the league's cap, which is a pretty standard number. That's, that's sort of how these contracts have structured every year in terms of a new contract versus the current cap. And if we talk about that across the other sports, it's, that's a pretty standard number as well. Connor McDavid, which we've mentioned today, his $12.5 million will, will be just north of 16% of the NHL cap. Zach Grinke's $34 million is 17% of Major League Baseball's you know, luxury tax threshold. And then we get to the NBA, which is clearly the, you know, the outlier. Steph Curry's $40 million average salary is 33% of the, of the luxury tax threshold. So obviously they're playing on a different field right now than the rest of the sports. But And, and uh, if you want to be really blown away, how about the fact that Matthew Stafford is not the highest paid member of his high school graduating class? Oh, come on now. Who is it? Because for those who don't know, he grew up with and is best friends with Clayton Kershaw. Wow. How about that, huh? That's right. So when he and Kershaw hang around together, Kershaw picks up the meals. That's right. <laughs> Maybe not this isn't year. That crazy? Maybe not this isn't year. that crazy to think that with those numbers, he isn't the highest paid one of his friends? That's right. right? Who's the next Hey, Paul, one? I have that in common, by the way, Matthew Stafford. I'm not the highest paid in my <laughs> yeah, high school class. There you class go. Either. Who's the one who's going to blow this deal out of the water or at least top it by a million dollars? However, that always fun game wants to be played by the agents. Yeah, so the next man up apparently will be Aaron Rodgers. I, I can't see him, you know, taking the Tom Brady route and, and sort of taking a little bit less to keep that team intact. Um, he, he was the highest paid player when he signed his last contract. Uh, he's on track to be a $30 million per year player 
in terms of his production and where he is age-wise and, and things like that. So, you know, the, the Packers will need to rebuild a little bit in the next couple of years, but it will come around a massive contract for Aaron Rodgers. You know, Aaron Rodgers was on track to be just like Brady, but then he broke up with Olivia Munn. Yeah. See, there you go. I think the interesting, most interesting thing, <laughs> glad you added that, Kevin. Um, the most interesting thing that you talked about, Mike, and I think this is how, and how salary cap guys in the league think, is that average amount of cap. And I think you'll probably say around 16 is generally where the, the top quarterbacks are, and when when teams sit down and figure out how to allocate all that cap money, they're going to say, we have a good quarterback, he's going to get 15 or $16 million percent of it. Yeah, the percentage of the cap is really a neat way to look at it because it, it, it's it's sort of how we envision a GM kind of assessing his table, right? And, and we do that positionally as well. So, you know, we, we kind of look at how are all the running backs positionally percentaged in terms of the of that team's cap and wide receivers and defensive line and offensive line. And it's a really neat breakdown that we have on the site. So you can kind of see how teams have allocated per, in, in percentages their money on an annual basis. And uh, there are some holes across the league that are very evident on the field. Well, that's a really great breakdown of, you know, hey, what the contract is, what the cash is going to be, what the actual contract is going to be, and how does it relate to uh, the percentage of cap for teams and the rest of the league? That does it for this week's edition of the Spot Track Podcast. For Mike Gennetti, Paul Peck, I'm Kevin Sylvester. Check out SpotTrack.com for every contract in every sport.